This is Shannon in Durham, Chip in Durham, and Erica in Edmonton. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 18, Babylon Squared. Hello and welcome and Happy New Year to all our listeners. We are very glad to talk to you again about one of our favorite television shows ever, Babylon 5. We are up to the episode Babylon Squared, and because it didn't seem right to have a title with squared and just three of us talking, we pulled in an extra guest. Uh, We have with us today Liz Miles. And uh, Liz, how might people who listen to podcasts know you? Uh, Well, if they listen to Doctor Who podcasts, I'm on Verity, being Scottish and saying extremely sensible things almost all the time, probably. Which Erica obviously agrees with. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm. I'm totally <laughs> nodding over here. Yep. And and you're never you're never wrong about anything, right, Liz? Well, when it comes to Doctor Who, I'm pretty sure I'm. I'm usually not wrong. Yes. <laughs> and that's true. And, and David Tennant's your favorite uh, uh, Doctor, right? Because he's Scottish and all, right? No, no. Scottish doctors who put on fake English accents come ah. quite far down the list of ah, doctors. So, I see. Alas, Mr. Tennant does does not make it into my top 11 doctors. <laughs> that, was, that wasn't his decision. <laughs> and yet. Oh, oh my. Oh my. We'll, we'll talk later. <laughs> But in the meantime, we are um, talking about Babylon 5 on this podcast. So, uh, Liz, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into watching the show? Um, It was odd when I was quite young and for some reason intimidated and frightened me. And then eventually they kept talking about it in a magazine that I used to be subscribed to when I was young called TV Zone. And at some point I decided to start watching it during the fifth season. And that was the one I watched first. And then I worked my way back in a bizarre, haphazard order, which uh, clearly is the traditional and correct way to go about watching Babylon 5. Wow. When we get to the spoiler section, I really want to hear more about that because I'm very (laughs) interested in how it played out for you. Well, I like it quite a lot. (laughs) I guess it worked. (laughs) For me, yeah. It certainly fits in with the uh, theme of the episode, uh, with all the the time jumping that happens. Uh, So it it fits right in. Uh, So, yeah, there'll be plenty to talk about in this one, uh, both in the uh, spoiler-free area for our newbies. But definitely those of you who are our veterans will have a lot to talk about uh, once we get through the jump gate. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, let's get started. Uh, What you need to know... After the Earth-Mimbari War, a coalition of planetary governments decided to create the Babylon Project to be the equivalent of a United Nations in space. However, the first three were sabotaged by opponents to the project, and the fourth one disappeared without a trace 24 hours after going fully online. Babylon 5 was built in a different sector, about three hours away in normal spaceflight. The Mimbari are ruled by a leader and the nine-member Grey Council. When a leader dies, the council observes a mourning period of 10 years and then selects a new leader from among their group. It has been 10 years since the death of the previous leader, Dukat, and it is time to choose the next leader. Which leads us to this episode. Ivanova has been keeping tabs on strange tachyon emissions coming from Sector 14 and is waiting for the reconnaissance pilot to return. When the fighter returns, the pilot has died from apparent old age and was only able to set his autopilot on to return and scratch a cryptic message on his belt, B-4. Soon after, Command and Control receives a distress signal that matches all security codes for Babylon 4. The commanding officer, Major Krantz, pleads for help to evacuate the skeleton crew. Once they arrive, Sinclair and Garibaldi discover that Babylon 4 has indeed reappeared and begin the evacuation. Krantz shows them a person who appeared suddenly just as things began to go haywire, an alien who calls himself Zathras. Zathras explains that the station is going to be pulled through time, where it will become a staging ground for forces to fight a great darkness in an interstellar war. Waves of tachyon emissions cause everyone to experience flashes of a different time, in the past or the future, along with the appearance of a mysterious figure in a spacesuit. 
As the situation escalates, everyone is able to evacuate but Zathras, who is trapped by fallen debris. And after others leave, the space-suited figure reappears, making Zathras very happy. In the meantime, Delenn meets up with a Mimbari starship. After preparing herself, she steps into a darkened chamber to become part of a circle of cloaked figures. The others greet her and tell her she has been chosen to be the new leader of the Mimbari, which means she won't be returning to Babylon 5. Delenn protests strongly that her work on Babylon 5 is not complete. After some debate and a few impassioned speeches from Delenn about the importance humans will have in the future, the Council accepts her wishes, though it is clear that her standing is not quite as firm as it once was with them. Once the Babylon 4 station has disappeared again, presumably on its way to its new time, the space-suited figure removes its helmet to reveal a visibly aged Sinclair. He mourns that he tried to warn them, but that it all happened as he remembered. Delenn reaches over to comfort him and tells him the others are waiting. And that is the episode Babylon Squared, which uh, JMS said flat out many times in his uh, conversations on RecArts SFB5 that um, this asks more questions than it answers. <laughs> and I think that's fair enough. Uh, what was everyone, What were everyone's impressions about it, either first time or this time? Well, for me, as I have said before, I, I came at season one backwards because I, I didn't start at season five like, like Liz did, but I did start later on. So when I finally got around to watching season one, I'd seen most of the rest of Babylon 5. So uh, so it's hard to kind of get the, the complete newbie perspective, but... I really like time travel episodes of, of, of anything, even when they're not done very well, I usually have a tendency to enjoy them. So mm -hmm. I thought it was fascinating that this this thing that we had heard about for, you know, there have been several different episodes that have mentioned the other Babylon stations being sabotaged and then B4 disappearing. And, you know, as soon as I hear something like that, ooh, it disappeared, that's very exciting to me. So the fact that now we actually get to see it popping back up and then disappearing again was just, I don't know, it's just a little nugget of, of awesomeness that, that makes me very excited to, to see if it, you know, if it maybe appears again, if we ever find out what happened to it. I, I like that kind of mystery. Yeah, I also like that not only is it mystery, but it's good mystery. The fact that the station returns and then disappears again, you know, the, it, it in itself could be interesting enough an interesting enough basis to hang a story around. But the fact that it's clearly about more than just what we discovered this time around, that we know that there's more coming uh, from old Sinclair taking off his helmet to um, conversations about a great war coming and things like that. This is a signpost. It's not just a, it's not just a one-off, you know, the mystery of Babylon four is not solved in this one. Um, it is just, made immensely more complicated than just this predecessor station disappeared without a trace. No, I, I love the fact that it raises so many questions and yet still manages to be a satisfying story in and of itself because we get the, the answers to what happens to the crew of the station. They go in and rescue, they successfully manage to save all these people who are having these bizarre experiences and that's... You know that, that 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 kind of sort of little win there is is where you get the satisfaction from from the narrative at this stage, but the raising of all those questions, um, even even if Babylon Five hadn't gone on and the the, the and uh, I I don't know can I say and address those questions is that too spoilery? <laughs> it addresses questions raised here. I think it's fair to say that most questions that are asked in Babylon 5 get answered at some point. Not all, but most. Eventually. Uh, mm -hmm. I, well, I think that the, 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 even if we'd never got any answers to any of the questions here, it would still be a great story. I, I love the sense of the mythology expanding, of the, the universe being so much bigger than what we're getting to see, of, of the sort of uh, the expanding kind of game area of the the time, uh, how it's not just space, but there's there's epic things going on in time here too. And um, I, I, much as I love Doctor Who, I do like time travel being treated as well as something quite extraordinary and mysterious and powerful and dangerous like it is here. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was exciting with the flashes and the uh, the poor pilot in his, in his uh, 
in his ship. That is something that's a that's a trope that's come up in a lot of time travel stories and in a lot of media over the years, that being exposed to time travel ages you prematurely kind of thing scares me every single time. I think it's a great thing. Yeah, I uh, that's a really good point about uh, time travel and science fiction. It's either super commonplace or it's just sort of way out of left field and scary and something like that. And we've gotten used to it um, as Doctor Who fans. And Well, it's not to say that Doctor Who entirely treats time travel as, as just an everyday thing. As a matter of fact, when we got the um, the scene of Sinclair reaching out to the, the figure uh, and then, you know, zap, and he falls back. That's very Blinovich. Yeah. At the end of the episode, <laughs> when it was revealed that it was older Sinclair, Stephen goes, ah, so that was a Blinovich limitation effect sort of thing, right? And I was like, yes, that's already in my notes. Yeah. But for the most part, you know, Stephen Moffat and um, modern and dead um, being the most obvious um, exceptions. For the most part, Doctor Who treats time travel as a change of setting more than actually playing with the mechanics and the Im- impact mm-hmm. of time travel for, for the most part. Babylon 5, to this point, has not, ha- except in the previous episode, we've not had, uh, which was the voice in the wilderness, we've not had super science. We've not had that kind of stuff. Um, that and, um, and actually Jason Ironheart. Mm-hmm. Still, these these sort of super sciencey comic booky aspects of space opera, they're few and far between. This is the biggest one yet, and I like that we took so we took so long to get to this point. We're we're eighteen yeah. stories in. Yeah, that's one of the things I I really love about Babylon Five is it does establish such a. a of course, terrible phrase, such a realistic reality, and then is extremely sparing. You can, as as you say, in a season, there's only three instances of this kind of. I, I love. I, I haven't heard that before. That's brilliant. But super science. These these the things that we argue are probably not scientifically possible as far as we know at the moment. But um, but yeah, to to be use it so spring like like a like an exquisite spice just to make things feel it feels that much bigger when these things come along because they're so much more extraordinary compared to the everyday space operatic stuff going on. Agreed. Um, something else about um, how they use time travel in this episode that I liked was the insert of the the idea of the flash forward and the flash back because it um, rewards a bit of continuity in Garibaldi's instance. We get uh, we get to see part of his conversation with Lee's that he just talked about um, in the previous episode. Was that Voice mm-hmm. in the Wilderness or yeah. one before mm-hmm. that? Yeah, it was Voice so in the Wilderness. So we very quickly get a little rewarded with a little more information there. And then on Sinclair's side, we get a flash forward that shows some kind of huge conflict happening. Things are going downhill. Garibaldi's going to make a last stand and sacrifice himself so that more people can get away. And that really ramps up a tension that was already there in the episode, but it sort of dials it to 11 there for a little bit. Yeah, except for the fact that Garibaldi goes full action hero, and that doesn't quite do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, apparently, Jerry Doyle ad-libbed some of that, that there was not enough you written. Don't and say. <laughs> yeah, and, and the is. directions from JMS were something about a primal yell, and the director had him do that, and they needed a little more. He's like, well, you know, keep going. So full-on aliens. That was, that, that was completely ripped off from aliens uh-huh. uh i yeah, didn't I mind it. it i didn't mind i mean it. i didn't hate it i didn't hate it it just it it was kind of goofy enough that it actually ended up ratcheting down the tension mm-hmm. i mean the, the whole idea of jumping forward and seeing this crazy conflict and be like oh my god when is this going to happen what does this mean that was really cool but then i just sort of ended up snickering to myself at that moment so it 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 maybe dimmed the tension just a little. Uh, with my amazing observational skills, I never actually noticed what he was saying at that point until I read about it in an interview. And then, obviously, I, ha- I had to see how ridiculous this was that I'd managed to brilliantly miss whenever I'd watched it before. And it was like, oh dear. <laughs> this has lost a little bit of the dramatic tension for me now. <laughs> but clearly the first time it worked well enough that you were really into it, so it didn't even... Yeah, yeah, it just sort of whizzed over my awareness because I'm paying so much attention to what the actors are saying. And to be, fair, so good. to be fair, uh, as goofy Jerry Doyle moments go in this episode, that's, you know, that's kind of a mild one compared to... 
uh, fastened and zipped. Flag. That's a very sensible conversation. Yeah, actually, I liked that part. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was it was goofy, but it just it seemed sort of it seemed sort of fitting. I mean, I feel like he played it well. If if you're going to complain about the goofiness of it, I think in that case, you have to point to the writing because it's really what he's talking about. That's the goofy thing, not so much the way that he's doing it. I feel like his delivery is just fine. Yeah, it's a it's a big it's a big Jerry Doyle episode actually. Considering that the the plot doesn't really revolve around him at all, but he just sort of comes out. He he, he just second bananas all over the place, and it's a load of fun. It's a load of fun. The gag with uh, Ivanova at the beginning of the episode, the conversation in the sh- <laughs> in, in the shuttle, you know, it it's 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 See? a little overdone perhaps, but still, it's a load of fun. The gag at the beginning, I'm like, whatever, guys, that's so funny. I don't think. But then in the shuttle, I'm like, ha you're great. I like both of you now, even though normally I'm more lukewarmish. I, I, I actually love Sinclair in that scene as well. I think his expressions are marvelous. You know what? I will I will agree. I actually, th- this was a pretty good Sinclair episode, and I guess maybe I'm jumping ahead to our, um, that's our Sinclair fine. check-in. Jump away. <laughs> um, but... It better be a good Sinclair episode, considering the plot. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But it started off really strong because that that first scene with his joy in mornings and just the way that he's talking to Ivanova was excellent. That was it was charming and it was warm and it was fun and and I really I really liked that scene. And then you know the the scene between him and Garibaldi and the shuttle like that was that was pretty good too. He 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 does that sort of thing very well. So I like it when he's doing that. However, we did get some you know wide-eyed acting from him as he's uh, leaving the room with Zathras after he has after um, something happens, you know, and he has to rush out of the room. But like his his eyes stay on Zathras as he's leaving the room and they are like half the size of his head. It just looks ridiculous. <laughs> and then some people just have wide eyes. No, he does that. not though. He opens them wide. <laughs> to you know to stand in for acting which bothers me no i'm sure that probably like focuses in how that's how eyes work you have to widen mm-hmm. them so you can focus have yeah. you ever noticed <laughs> and then the other thing that kind of bothered me was not a michael o'hare thing it was more of a direction thing but when babylon 4 is falling apart at the end and he's finding he has to leave zathras he's just sort of standing there looking at it and watching things crash down around him and garibaldi has to grab him and pull him out and i'm willing to chalk that up to the Blinovich limitation effect that you know he's been zapped so maybe he's a little out of it but I found it frustrating because every time you know in a horror movie you tell people you know run or don't go upstairs or just these really basic common sense things that and somebody not doing. doesn't do it yep and then Shannon right after that moment Shannon starts laughing hysterically and I wasn't entirely paying attention at that moment and 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 what, what was it Shannon right at, right after that um, moment it was just really obvious from the trajectory that uh, one of the boxes or something had been just thrown at them from next to the camera. Just <laughs> for some reason, it just cracked me up. Oh, so. that's adorable. This is yeah. the type of thing that I can remember never thinking that those things falling down on top of the actors are probably not that heavy. And then at some yeah. point I found out. And ever since then, it's just it's it's been terrible. Wouldn't you hate to be that pr- production assistant or whatever who who lobs the box over at the actors and actually nails them? <laughs> depend, would depend on the actor. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but then, th- th- hey, they make the gag real. So. That's true. Uh, since we sort of shifted into a bit with uh, directing and so forth, I wanted to ask this. Uh, we have uh, as our director Jim Johnston, who uh, directed a bunch of episodes in Series 1, a few in Series 2, and I think his last one was in uh, Season 3. He's done some of the ones that uh, we have all found really good. We have, uh, some of the ones that have been divisive, like Soul Hunter, Parliament of Dreams, By Any Means Necessary, and Eyes. But JMS uh, talked about how... Uh, in the direction, they were very deliberately going with ways to jar the viewers, uh, lighting choices, for example, cutaways that were very sudden and abrupt. Uh, I think they were trying to enhance the tension, enhance the instability of the situation with choices like this. Uh, Did you guys notice this? Did it work for you, throw you out of the story? Wow, you know, I didn't know that that was a 
a choice kind of on purpose, but I did have in my notes that I noticed the uh, the lighting on the Minbari ship in particular, especially in the, mm-hmm. the Great Council Chambers, was but not even just in the Great Council Chambers, as as Dylan is walking away later on in another corridor on the spaceship somewhere, I assume. Um, mm-hmm. It's also very, very dramatic lighting. And I love that. I really I, I like it when when things are different on television from what I expect, because you don't see stuff that's that sharp and that harsh very often. And I suppose if you did, it would get really annoying. But every once in a while, like I like Liz's spice analogy. It is like a delicious spice that you don't want to use too much of because it'll overpower things, but it works really well in the right in the right, right quantities. And I didn't write anything down about the quick cuts or any of the other stuff that's supposed to maybe keep us on our back foot a little bit. But now that you point that out, I I sort of got that impression throughout the whole thing. And it I think it worked so seamlessly that I didn't notice they were doing it to me. So bravo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They did a pretty good job of um, redressing the Babylon 5 sets to be Babylon 4. I like the way... Don't say that! <laughs> it wow. might, and that's another thing that did not occur to me for so many years that they would have... Those weren't you said that didn't occur to me until just now when you said that chip you've ruined it (laughs) (laughs) i apologize for busting i apologize i'm sorry i'm just slow it's okay (laughs) uh but but um the lighting uh the lighting that sort of sickly green um actually resembles the coloring of the babylon 4 station uh Mm -hmm. from the exterior um and i just it's a subtle thing, but it helps. It helps quite a bit. But I like the way that they've they've got stacks of boxes all cellophane wrapped together and things like that. This is a this is a space that would have been like the Zocalo. There would have been people all over all around it. Instead, it's 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 this skeleton that's just waiting to be used and isn't going to be. Um, I I love I love the look of this episode. You know, d- direction to Jerry Doyle or whatever, notwithstanding on the um, on the aliens ripoff. I think this is a well directed episode. Yeah, I um, I'm, I'm glad to find out that they did that deliberately because I I used to be sort of frightened too strong a word, but I used to find this episode a little unsettling, so I'd often skip it when I rewatched and. Yeah, now that you've, you've said it, it's clear that the reason is it's the lighting, it's the fast cuts. It all just feels a little bit unreal, a little bit unsafe in a way that, that makes it stand out from from the rest of the season. Yeah, and like I said, they, they went in deliberately to, to create this effect. Something that Erica mentioned a few minutes ago with the Mimbari, that the starkness, the darkness and the spotlights, the way that they use that uh, to show again how completely alien the Membari can be um we get a little bit more of their background and their history uh with this uh the notion that you would wait 10 years to elect a new leader that that just blows blows mm-hmm. my mind that you know See, i really like that that was a part of their culture here that it, I'm, I'm quite divided on how i feel because half of it i think that's great and half of it i think oh for the love of that's ridiculous that is one aspect <laughs> that I, I thought that's that's nifty that's you know that feels mm-hmm. Well, they're not to- they're not totally leaderless. I mean, they've got the Grey Council, but they've just all got to sort of act in concert. They don't have a rallying point around them to. You know, uh, it, mm-hmm. it strikes me as as pointing out how you know the Minbari is one of the older cultures, which we have been told, and this this smacks of an older culture that's sort of operating on a grander scale than we are used to in our puny little mm-hmm. human world. So, yeah, you know, maybe ten years for them doesn't seem like all that much time. Yeah, I love yeah. that line when um, the uh, the guy who's sort of acting as the facilitator or whatever, um, the the man with mm-hmm. the staff with a triluminary in it, um, who he says, you know, Delenn wants to call the council back together. And he says, this has never been done. But if it was going to be done, this would be as good and a bad a time as any. You know, <laughs> I, I love that. I love that line and I love that performance. But it, it does say a lot of, about how hidebound and traditionalist Minbari culture may be, but also that there are people who are willing to work around it. And importantly, Delenn's not the only one. Yeah, that kind of makes that bit slightly better for me, because at that point I was head-desking a bit, because there was the bit where, oh, this thing has never been done, and this thing has not been done for a thousand years, and now this other thing has never been done, and the other thing being just calling the council back for another wee chat, and it was just, oh, for goodness sake, there was traditional and and, and bogged down in, in your your precedence, and 
institutions, but there's also that that a thousand years is a very long time not to break a rule, and <laughs> and for a rule to never have been broken twice for two different things, it was just like, uh. But then <laughs> then th- that you know maybe these are just the way, the way they express these things for meaning rarely because as you say clearly there are other people willing to work around these things or, or, or to find ways around them and given that there's two of them here it seems very doubtful that there would have been others who were sort of bending the rules so they could continue to say oh it's been exactly this way for the past millennia when it hadn't really you know, so, I, I find I like it interesting that. too that they are very, you know, hidebound. It seems like the lighting is very much sort of a choice to reflect their culture and their society. It's either dark or it's light, and I find that that's interesting considering this is the Gray Council, whereas nobody seems to be acting in ways that really sound very gray until we get Delenn wanting to oh. call the council back and this guy mm-hmm. agreeing with her. The lighting is gorgeous, though. I absolutely, I love the design of the council chamber. Mm-hmm. I think it's just marvelous. It's I just love so stark. Yeah, I, I love the I love and we get a better look at it this time than we did in um, Science Importance. But I love that CGI sort of ceiling uh, rotating thing, um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. that, that unearthly thing, uh, not mechanical like the current uh, TARDIS set, but uh, mm-hmm. something more m- something more mystical, Crystally? mystical. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, yeah. And um, oh, and the robes, the robe. I love the Grey Council robes. Yeah. The sort of the, the sense of the stateliness and grandeur of them, and the way Delaine. So, I mean, Delaine uh, at this point in her her character does seem you know, very uh, authoritative and and uh, imperious. Uh, but that even in her ordinary Bimbari clothes, but when she puts those robes on, it it just takes it to a whole other level of of stuff. It's, and I, I like the way that she just sort of matter-of-factly matter starts uh, stripping and changing clothes in the corridor outside there. You mm-hmm. know, just, you know, just no pretense, no shyness, no anything, just, you know, but it looks for all the world like she's just uh, changing clothes right there. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I, I, for some reason, I just really like that. Just, uh, there's, there's ritual, but there's also matter-of-factness. Yeah, um, and the whole sets for the Mimbari, um, the the Grey Council, everything worked very well for me, too. Something I picked up this time that I didn't pick up before, you know, again, paying more attention to technical details uh, with the lighting, when after the confrontations are over and Delenn and the facilitator are walking back and they're going through spotlights and the spotlight lights up their faces and you can see clearly their expressions and then they're talking and then they go through into a shadow area and what you can see of their faces suddenly turns almost frightening because you can only make out the barest features. Um, and it's just, and it goes back and forth, back and forth and creates a really unsettling effect to, you know, make you think, you know, what, well, you know, the Mambari are supposed to be good guys, but you know, they keep talking about things are going to happen. What do they know that they really ought to be sharing? So I really like the, the way that the technical um, aspects are, um, underpinning and emphasizing the story. Yeah, it's great. I love it. <laughs> this is a really good episode. Well, as long as we're talking so much about direction, um, I'm curious what Stephen thought of it. Because that's he, sort of how he's plugged in. Yeah, and you know, I he didn't really say a whole lot this time about the direction in particular. I'm sure he noticed a whole bunch of stuff and probably just didn't tell me. He really did like this episode, though. He enjoyed it quite a bit. And uh, <clears throat> there's one line where... Uh, somebody says, you know, we've been surrounded by signs and portents, which Stephen immediately pointed accusingly at the television. Like, title significance. <laughs> I remember that episode. It was very adorable. So okay. so he, he definitely recognizes that, that we are still in, in sort of the phase where we're getting the signs and the portents. And, and this, these are the pointers. These are not the things that are being pointed at. Um, mm-hmm. But I think he's enjoying that. And when it was over, and I'm going to paraphrase this because it has a naughty word in it, uh, his his line was just some heavy stuff there. <laughs> so, so he's picking he's picking up what they're putting down. Um, he just doesn't quite know what it all means yet. But I think in this, at this point he's still really enjoying the ride, maybe even more than he was earlier. Because I think in Signs Importance he was a little annoyed at the fact that it was so 
signy and portentous, whereas in this case... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in this case, as Liz said, this is a really good story, even if they never pick anything else of this up down the road, because it, it's it's pretty self-contained um, with what it's doing in, at this point. And I think I, he the other thing that Stephen mentioned, and I'm shaking my head at this, uh, was on Twitter. Somebody said something about uh, about Chip flailing at, at Stephen's. I wouldn't say dislike, but his his. He prefers, yeah. Well, he, he he prefers episodes that don't have Londo and Jakar in them. Which, I'm, yeah, I'm shaking my head at that. But he said that after <laughs> this episode, that was just reinforced because you don't get Londo and Jakar here, and he really liked this one. So <laughs> nobody's perfect. Mm. Well, it, well, wait and see. I think you said um, way back when we got started with this how Babylon Five rewards you when you pay attention to continuity. And I think this is one of the episodes where we do get some of the rewards. Um, we get some recurring characters, uh, some references to the other Babylon stations. Uh, we get um, a return of Lee's, so to speak, and mm-hmm. Garibaldi's flashback. Um, we've got our uh, CNC fellow Corwin. He's he's in an even bigger role now. It's like gradually he's um, his visibility is rising. Um, our cataracts Minbari, who was there at uh, after at the end of the Sky Full of Stars, is back being oh, yeah. grumpy again, like he was being grumpy before. Uh, so I think JMS is starting to dole out things that reward people who've been sticking with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. <clears throat> like I noticed that there was a Minbari who had sort of whitish eyes. Mm-hmm. But I had completely forgotten that we had seen him before. So thank you for reminding me. Even I miss this stuff, newbies. Yeah. And then, of course, we get um, something brand new to chew on in this uh, mysterious guy, Zathras. So. He cracks mm. me up. Oh. <laughs> really? Really, oh, Liz? Oh, Liz. Oh, it's not my fault. I was just fine with Zathras until I found out how much fandom adored him and then I was just like oh my god take your over the top reaction and go away <laughs> and and it, it my mild like just just gets colder and colder when I'm told this is the funniest most hilarious thing ever and I'm like no no it's not stop being Liz it was great having you on uh, the audio guide for Batman <laughs> 5 <laughs> I honestly didn't know that fandom was was so pro Zathras I just I just liked him. It's so. the character that launched a thousand SIG files. <laughs> yeah, see, that means nothing to me. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, he, he, he makes a splash. He makes an impression, certainly. And um, a lot of fandom uh, picked up on it uh, in wow. possibly unexpected ways. But but yeah, uh, I think, and Chip, you're going to have to correct me again on his name. Uh, Tim Choate? I believe Is so. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but... The, the way he came up with the performance, um, he's apparently he was an actor who really enjoyed playing through prosthetics. So he was able to take the appearance of Zathras and run with it and add his own touches to it. That makes him very memorable. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> just just smile and nod, Liz. Just smile and nod. Sorry. <laughs> Blame fandom. Yeah. I, I think, do. I, it is their fault. It's not my fault. It's collectively fandom's fault. <laughs> it always is. <laughs> it always is. Uh, but the the fact that he gives um, not only that the performance can be seen as very interesting, very funny, but also that he gives um, so much of the information that is needed, uh, explaining uh, what's going on with the station, why it's being pulled through time. Um you know, seeming doesn't recognize Sinclair and then um, backing off. Uh, and then, of course, at the end, telling Sinclair that he's got to go. You've got a destiny. Mm-hmm. You can't stay here and be sucked away in time. Um, so he, he winds up being a pretty pivotal character as well as an interesting one. I just love that fashion sense of his. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, now you lost me. <laughs> <laughs> Shannon, I think a raccoon tail coat would uh, be fetching on me. I don't think our climate's quite cold enough for that. Yes, ma'am. No, Chip, you cannot come visit me just to wear a raccoon tail coat. (laughs) Can I do it just to see your and Stephen's reactions? (laughs) Well, that might be worth it. (laughs) Okay. So um, is there anything else we want to talk about before we get into the jump gate and where we can take a deep breath and talk about everything else? 
I, I do just some, a couple of random little observations. I thought it was cool that Delenn doesn't need a pilot. I don't know if her, you know, when she's heading off to the Great mm-hmm. Council, I don't know if her ship was on auto or what. She didn't look like she was doing very much. But it had I, three controls. It had three buttons. That, yeah, that was... <laughs> I did have that in my notes somewhere the, the, about who, whoever's the design, you know, what, that they just like come out of like, you know, a Care Bears movie or something just with all those lights and and, you know, yeah, triangles. Yes, because the Mimbari seemed to like them. But still, it was it was very, very candy coated. Yeah, it looked like, yeah, Jolly Ranchers or something that she was she was pushing on to. To, to make things go but i i like the fact that she is is on her own and doesn't need some sort of a retinue to come along with her or honor guards mm-hmm. or anything like that uh, which of course would look weird from the babylon five side maybe a little bit i mean she's an ambassador but they don't know that she's on this crazy gray council thing but i just mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that about her character that she is willing to just pick up and go and do it herself mm-hmm i have nothing to add i'm just sort of uh at the edge of my seat waiting for the jump gate <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, in that case, uh, let us let our newbies know uh, our homework next time uh, is the episode "The Quality of Mercy." Uh, so that is what you should watch uh, before you listen to our next podcast. Uh, as always, we invite everyone to come and discuss the episodes that we're watching uh, on social media. We are uh, at b5audioguide.com, where we have uh, discussion threads, both for uh, people who've seen the entire series and people who haven't. So you can discuss spoiler free. Uh, and we are also on Twitter and Tumblr at B5 Audio Guide. And we welcome everyone to offer their input and join in the conversation. And with that, we will head for a jump gate. And we're back. And now we can all take a deep breath. And yes, Sinclair is Valen. Yes. And, of course, the, the obvious place to start when talking about these is, of course, the um, tails to the coin, uh, if Babylon Squared is the heads. Uh, our two-parter in Season 3, War Without End, uh, fills in the other half of what's been going on. Mm. And and did I hear correctly, as we were talking uh, before, Both did both of you, Erica and Liz, see War Without End before seeing Babylon Squared? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did. Yeah, so... Weird, Liz, Liz, Yeah, I think Liz said that this was like the prequel. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a nice prequel. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I'm just really curious as to what I think if I see them the other way around. Because, yeah, this this was a slightly mysterious one of what was going on in, in the actual time they were in at the time, as opposed to what is old Sinclair doing. Because I knew what old Sinclair was doing there. Mm-hmm. He'd be like that. <laughs> yeah, that, that wasn't you. But, uh, yeah, no, I think it makes a lovely prequel. I think it's, I think it's probably the best way round to watch them, really. You know, I, I agree that that might actually be the case because this episode felt really big and momentous to me in a way that I don't think it felt to Stephen. I think it was just kind of neat and mysterious to him. And and um, I think one of our commenters on the uh, on the spoiler section on the website had also said that that coming back and 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 watching this. You know, trying to think of it as a newbie, it's not quite as exciting as it was seeing it after having watched, um, having watched War Without End because this is, yeah, it, it feels like an extra bit of buildup, which is weird because that's you know not exactly yeah. the way it works. It is like The Hobbit, film wise. <laughs> if you did the film anything like the book to The Lord of the Rings, film wise in the correct order, well, in the order of the films. That was a great metaphor. I don't know what you're saying. That <laughs> works so well. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to imagine what it might have been like since, you know, we did see it in order. We started watching in order in season one and then catching up until we were watching um, somewhere in season two with the uh, first airing, first broadcast as it came out. And yeah, I, I cannot... I cannot possibly imagine what it must have been like to see uh, the war without end first and then and then this one. Um, I agree that this one feels, you know, with, without knowing the rest of the story, it does ask more questions than it answers. It feels like there's going to be more to the story later on, uh, even though in and of itself, it does um, do a pretty satisfying job of entertaining you for an episode. It was pretty cool. I remember um, that. 
because War of Their End, uh, it, it, if, if you haven't watched B5 up to that point, it, it also asks an awful lot of questions that you don't have answers to about all this mythology stuff. That's right. And so that mm-hmm. helped to get me interested in everything that had been happening and how it all connected together. It was a bit like starting watching Doctor Who with the Five Doctors and wanting to know what on earth was going on with all this <laughs> stuff. I, I wanted to know how everything connected because um, because my starting point with B5 was I, is, uh, I really like when science fiction handles um, telepathy in a very serious manner and, and B5 had taken it off um, actual Alfred Bester, not Babylon 5's Alfred Bester, mm-hmm. uh, The Demolished Bad. They, they take a lot of inspiration from that. That's one of my favourite books and that's how I got started there. So that was kind of the first thread that I went through and then at some point I saw War Without End and then suddenly it was like, oh, there's interesting things in Babylon 5 that don't have anything to do with the Psychor. <laughs> right. <laughs> I should probably watch some of those episodes too. Yeah. Okay. One of the things, if you... Watching this and watching and, and remembering War Without End and knowing a little bit of the backstory that was going on uh, with with regard to uh, Michael O'Hare and the evolution of the story is I can't help watching Babylon Squared and trying to do a little bit of criminology and figure out which parts were from the original um, the original outline, the original expectations for what would happen to um, Jeffrey Sinclair, and what got worked in. This was uh, the 18th episode produced. And as we know from uh, JMS's interviews and things like that, uh, that uh, Michael O'Hare was dealing with serious mental illness, and it was clear... I'm I'm sure it was clear by this point that he was only just going to make it through the end of the season, and that uh, the role of the of the station commander would have to be recast. So, how much of this feeds into the uh, the the sort of Babylon Prime storyline, which was going to have Sinclair and um and his allies stealing Babylon Four, taking it into the future. Uh, for the Shadow War, which would be part of the, which would be essentially um, a new series to go after the five-year series, and how much of this was setting up what JMS had in mind with Babylon Four going into the past and Sinclair coming into Valent, it's kind of tricky. And you know, for example, there are some very clear male grunts and groans coming from that uh, spacesuit. When I'm not entirely sure when it was supposed to be Delenn in that suit, or when it was supposed to be Sheridan in that suit, um, it, it's it's not as seamless as I would like it to be in ter- in terms of it being a bookend to War Without End. But I don't know how it could have been. Yeah, it was. I was wondering that myself watching it. But I I do think that maybe they were at least a little ways into the the refiguring it out because I. I think at one point I mentioned the word Valen to Stephen, and he was like, what is that? And I realized we haven't really heard the name Valen mentioned very many times. You know, it's it, every once in a while, a, a Mimbari will say in Valen's name or something like that. But it hasn't been a big deal. And then suddenly in this episode, they suddenly mention Valen, Valen like a kabillion times. It comes up a lot. So I don't know if, if suddenly JMS was like, okay, this is the way we're going to have to go. So I want to suddenly start drilling it into people's heads that Valen's a big deal. I don't know. He, um, online, when he was writing uh, War Without End, he made a big deal about saying about how tough it was making it all fit. And in retrospect, now we know why it was so tough, that it wasn't it wasn't clear. It wasn't a direct line from original outline to final production that he had that he actually had to make some big changes and uh, that Valen wasn't part of the original plan. That may have been a teachable moment for him as far as how rigorous to make arc television from that point on. I don't know. <laughs> I did like the other little continuity continuity thing that at the end we, we see old Sinclair and we hear Delenn's voice and see her arm coming out to pat him on the shoulder, but we don't actually see her. And then and Stephen was like, yeah, why? why you know, he, I could tell he was wondering why we don't see Delenn. He's like, that sounded like her. I think that was her. And then in my head, I'm like, oh, right. By that time, she's got hair. So, you know, they can't really show her head because that would be a huge crazy spoiler. Hmm. This yeah. is the yeah, first time that I watched the episode on a TV that had no or- overscan, much less... Uh, was in widescreen. I did find it funny that, you know, now that we're in widescreen, we get her nose. Yeah. <laughs> but that's it. That's all we yeah. get on the side of the screen. 
Oh, yeah. that is one of the bits that doesn't match up. That does no, it doesn't. Petally annoy me. That doesn't match up. I said doesn't. Right. What? Right. I was um, agreeing yes, with you. Oh, right. Sorry. Because um, because of her clothes being different, and it's just mm-hmm. I, I feel that's a little petty on my part. And yet, would it have been so hard to give her an outfit that had the same sleeves? Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I didn't yeah, realize that it didn't match, so now I'm a little bit miffed uh, as well. Oh, right, yeah. No, I didn't notice either. But Again, the green dress interviews. is killer. <laughs> I, you know I'm what? Steven, Steven is red-green colorblind, so he probably won't notice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think the other bit that just, again, I can see, I, I think I remember reading that they had to come up with something for him to be referring to. I tried to warn them. Um, and his warning is just trying to communicate with Garibaldi to watch his back because someone's going to shoot him in the back. It's like, really? Is that it? That's all you can warn them about? All this is happening and you're just warning him about a thing he'll survive and then just get a little bit more paranoid about? It just seemed a bit, eh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You now, you, you could have like emailed plans of where Zahadim was and what's going on there <laughs> and stuff like that. That might have been a little more helpful. Yeah. Um, one one of the bit I really love though that ties in with War Without End is um, is uh, when Garibaldi's downstairs and he's got the fusion reactor things and we get that uh, he, uh, in in Babylon Square. Then War Without End, we have Ivanova on the screen desperately, you know, mm-hmm. being terrified as the station's going to blow up, and, and she just repeats the same thing that Garibaldi's thingamajiggered the the fusion reactors, um, and and just sort of seeing the contrast with how they're both dealing with it even though Garibaldi's hair is wrong. But I suppose they kind of really suspected that he would suddenly have no hair. But I, I, I just I just like the thing about the fusion reactors is is there, so it feels that that, that helps solidify it for me as the same reality, the horrid future reality. Another discontinuity that JMS owned up to online before the episode was uh, filmed was that... Um, uh, in the in, in Babylon Square, they describe a white a big flash, and then suddenly uh, Zathras is in the conference room, and that doesn't um, that that's not the way it go. It works out in War Without End. He said that he just didn't have space for it. It would have been three three pages of useless filler. So they just those people are probably confused anyway with all their dashing about back in time flashing around anyway uh, so excellent. They've, got, they've got flashes in their head the whole time they don't know what's going on you have yeah. provided me or, with some lovely headcanon yeah <laughs> that's what i that's what i assumed from having watched it that yeah I, i'm ignoring what he's saying there you don't know what you pay attention to your own story jms these these people <laughs> were confused <laughs> yeah I, i'm trying to decide what um well, I, I guess it makes sense. Um, the fact that, you know, of course, in War Without End, we realize why we got the big Chekhov's gun of the great machine down on Epsilon 3 uh, mm-hmm. to pull Babylon, 5, Babylon 4 back through time. Uh, but that, you know, this was just introduced in the previous episode. But then in Babylon Squared, of course, there's no mention. They don't even think about what what the machine could do. It's still the information is too new. They still don't know anything about it. Um, but that's going to... Um, jump this episode and become much more important in the second half of the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On the uh, Minbari side of things, when the Great Council is, is discussing prophecy, um, I, I I like the fact that some of them doubted that it, it actually dealt with humans. So, I mean, that made it kind of clear to me that because I, I had gotten a little bit fuzzy on as far as the Valen thing goes, if they exactly what they knew about Sinclair's character. Did they know he was Valen? Did they just think he was special in some way? What, what was the deal? So at this point, it's clear that, that they don't know that he is Valen. So but if they're doubting it's connected with humans, what on earth do you think that waving the triluminary at them is doing? A fluke, why, why maybe? Do you, I don't know. They, they could nick more humans and poke them with this glowy stuff mm-hmm. as well, just to check. That's, I mean, maybe. that's true, but I don't think all humans were supposed to necessarily have shared Minbari souls. I well, that's that's why one. I suggest kidnapping quite a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, or, or I don't know. Okay, or or if you want to be less warmongering, you could just wander around one of their stations and hold the triluminary in your hands and sort of nudge them with it and go, "Is that lighting up? Is that lighting up?" You think there'd be a little more sort of rigorous investigation into it, maybe. Rather than, I, I do like the repeat of the line, which uh, 
comes later when Delenn's breaking the Council of Prophecy will attend to itself. One of the dudes there was just saying, mm-hmm. it's like, no, it won't, will it? I've seen the show. Yeah. You're wrong. <laughs> but one of the things that drove me, oh, I, I don't like big speeches about how great humans are and how amazing we are and how they sort of completely thingamajiggery over the massive flaws and terrible things that humanity has a habit of doing. And this had one of them, which I, I just I found doubly annoying because she's also got a great speech about humans at some other point in the future that I love, where the great big the thing about humanity is that they build communities. And I think that's wonderful, this idea that that's the great strength of humanity, of being able to overcome difference and not section everyone off into their own little sections of eventually being able to get people to connect to each other. Um Whereas here it was just like, gosh, we're so great. If only we realised we were so great, we'd be amazing. Or and it's that that made me go, really? Yeah, maybe, that, that maybe, speech fell a little flat for me too. Well, maybe she's laying it on a little thick because she knows that she's dealing with a lot of anti-human bias among the Grey Council. So she's hmm. just sort of overdoing it. She's just going to scare them then. And then they'll be like, oh my God, these humans, they're, they're going to get us. And we're just not as cool <laughs> as them. Maybe we should start up a war again. Planned. Uh, that might just be me. That that might be what I would have done if I if I, if I was. <laughs> Suddenly there. glad you're not an Imbari. I'm quite glad too. I'd I'd get really confused about the bone in my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whether the hair is supposed to go over the bone or under the bone. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I wouldn't have hair. I'm not putting myself in a blooming chrysalis for any galaxy-saving shenanigans. I'd, I'd be one of the rubbish grey council who'd be like, can we just stay at home and do sort all, please? That would be me. Speaking speaking of the chrysalis, um, so Delin receives the triluminary in this episode. Uh, another example of Minbari's, other Minbari oh, yeah. being sneaky. Because... <laughs> There, there, there are two more. This one's not going to be missed for a while. What? They're just sort of in a pile somewhere? They're in a case. I don't but, <laughs> Oh, I didn't pick up on that. I'm an idiot. <laughs> but uh, so let's – and this is sort of looking ahead to War Without End a little bit, but I'm just going to luxuriate in the geekiness of it. If you follow the path of the Triluminary, the Triluminaries come from Epsilon 3. Zathras is bringing them on board the White Star in War Without End. The Triluminaries travel back in time with Sinclair. Sinclair uses a Triluminary in a chrysalis to turn himself into Valen. And then the Triluminaries move forward in time the slow way, as the doctor said. And Delenn receives it and um, sets it up for uh, chrysalis at the end of the season. I just think that that's kind of geeky cool. It's it's three little bootstrap paradoxes all in one. Yep. (laughs) It's really neat. It's just, I do love the way that B5 uses time travel in that it's just, it's so very restricted. It's just for this one story. And that just helps to make this that, that particular story just seem so much grander and more exciting and dangerous and, and magnificent generally because they need to go that extra length to use this this superpower that they've got their hands on, but they mm-hmm. can't use it. F- it's, it's never used for anything else. Yeah. But this is just too important. And that almost uh, justifies the it almost justifies the sort of the way they wind up forgetting about Epsilon 3 after War Without End. You know, they either find an excuse to uh, not use its power because it's got to be a clean fight or they got to keep their ace in the hole or whatever. But Epsilon 3's only purpose, like time travel's only purpose in uh, Babylon 5 is to deal with Babylon 4, and that's it. It, it. it is so momentous, and I think the Epsilon 3 is part of that momentousness. Would it have been more satisfying if the great machine on Epsilon 3 had died in order to give them the power to go back in time? Yeah, but that would have killed wow. off Zathras and his brothers. Zathras and Zathras and Zathras and Zathras. And Zathras. And, and I, can't, I can't cotton to that. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. The 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 escape with the Zathrases would that be more satisfying rather than leaving it there open ended to be used to power the new system? You know, I think while I, I may have liked it a little better from a storytelling standpoint, if they would have you know put a a button on the end of the on the end of the great machine and and made it unusable after that, but I think you know, talking about it, teachable moments for arc-based storytelling for JMS, it was probably, I think, a wise thing to leave that there just in case, because if you ended up in another scrape, that could be the literal deus ex machina that comes in and saves the day. 
So what do you all think? Um, I mean, this is the really the toughest part of the five-year arc, I think, in terms of having it all hold together. You can rewrite stuff all over the place, but this is the tail end of the first season, and it sets up stuff that you've got no choice but to deal with. I, I think one of the reasons that we all like Babylon 5 is specifically because it's got a really heavy arc to it. But is this too heavy, really? Is no. this trying too much? No. <laughs> no. No, this is lovely. It is the part the, 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 it, is, it is a really good story. And part of that is because it does work on a, you, you could just watch this and pick up more or less everything you need to know and just seeing it. And, and But it does entice you to want to know more, to want to get those answers. And I think all of the heavy arc stories in season one do fantastic jobs with, with what they've got to work with. This and Signs of Portents and Chrysalis, I, I think all work well as, as episodic television that asks you a whole bunch of questions that should make you want to find out more if you've enjoyed that episode, but without making the episode itself a dissatisfying story experience, which is pretty admirable. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think that while, yes, we are, have s- sat here and we have been nitpicking a little bit on the few things that don't match up exactly, but that's not because we dislike it. It is, it's because we love it. We're doing it from a place yeah. of love. And, and I think that given the amount of time that they had to work with and the amount of variables that were changing and going on throughout the course of this story, I think that this does about as good a job keeping the continuity together as anything I could expect. I mean, it's probably even better than I would have expected given all of the different stuff that they had to work with and and the hoops that they needed to jump through. So despite the fact that there are a few little things that don't 100% match up the way I I wish they would in in my nerd brain, I'm okay with it because they did a fantastic job overall. And, you know, it's, it really is from a place of love. I notice these things because I'm paying that much attention because I'm invested and I care and it's fun. After you've seen it for the fifth or sixth time, you've got to you've got to distract yourself with something. You've got to find something new, and if that's going to be the clothes or the wrong clothes, yeah, <laughs> that's fair enough, isn't it? I think that's so. normal, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's nerd normal anyway. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay, uh, can we think of anything else that we want to say before we sign off? I I just wanted to point out that I think that it's. It's really nice and very poetic, I think, that Babylon 4 is still on the same mission after it goes away. It, you know, it was created to to foster peace and that is that is what it goes on to do. So We foster it, peace by going to war. Yeah. <laughs> well, saving saving the world from from wreck and ruin. I I think it it's it's a continuation of the uh, of the original purpose, I think, and I I like that idea. Looking at it in context of, of when they were making it and with the expectations they had of how the story would play out, that I, I think is an extraordinarily ambitious episode. And and it's really good. But but the ambition thing is is just it's pretty amazing. It's really and I've never really thought about it before, about what they were setting up and how far they were setting up and the kind of that that arkiness there and the way they managed to get it to pay off so well. It's uh, yeah. Well done, Babylon Five. Well done, indeed. I like about this episode um, the fact that this is the first time that the Mimbari prophecy angle starts really coming to the fore. Um, To this point, the mystery of the end of the Battle of the Line and the relationship between humans and Mimbari, to this point, all the clues that I think have been set up are mostly about the the soul migration, um, Mimbari being born in human bodies. And I think that if Michael O'Hare didn't have to be written out, I think that it would have continued along those veins. But I do think that this is where we first get the clues. Um, I don't think that prophecy would have been anywhere near as big a deal in the Babylon 5 story if there weren't plans to make those prophecies real by sending somebody back in time. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. that that's... I think that this really is the first time that we see JMS rewriting the outline to um, give us Valen and to um, give us this stuff. Um, how fully formed that was, we don't know, because um, at the beginning of the next season, we're going to get um, Lanier telling them the story of the soul migration. You know, I wonder if that angle would have been part of it to begin with, if um, he'd planned on writing out the Sinclair character early. But I think that this is a good signpost to what is to come. 
Indeed. I think that's one of the reasons I I love this episode so much is because it, even more than A Sky Full of Stars or Signs Importance, this really starts kicking things into um, a higher gear uh, for the arc and starts moving things along. And with that, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to uh, our episode-by-episode analysis of Babylon 5. Again, the homework for next time is The Quality of Mercy. Uh, That will be the episode that we discuss in our next episode. Uh, Please do stop by uh, our website, b5audioguide.com, or check in with us on Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide, and let us know what you think about the episodes uh, that you've seen before, uh, the ones that are to come, how it all works together. And how wrong Liz is about Zathras. Hey, I got a how rude. I got a how how rude. My work here is done. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll smack him later, Liz. <laughs> okay. And with that, this is Shannon and Durham. Chip and Durham. And Erica in Edmonton. Thanks, and Liz. Been, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you very thank much. Thank you. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. <laughs>